you know, everything's going to be AI. I mean, if you look at our portfolio, we have 30 companies a little over a year ago, about 14% of them are doing something AI related. Now it's like 85% of them are doing something AI related. And some are a hundred percent. Is that like the standard? Um, I don't know if it's ever going to be a hundred percent maybe, but I, I also think that, um, a lot of it is just doing AI for AI's sake, right? Because you got ChatGPT that kind of, Gen AI that's come on the market and you can build stuff pretty quickly, although it's probably not hugely differentiated. But, you know, it at least allows us to test out the possibility of what you can and can't do, which I, I love, right? We have yeah. some companies that are doing very sophisticated things around AI and they've been doing it for three, four or five years. So it's a big paradigm of what people are doing today around it. I do think everything is going to become AI um, uh, applicable or whatever the right word is, but I also don't think that they're going to, you know, AI is going to run the world. Hey, everybody, I'm Lori Brudeman, and this is Punk Rock HR. In each episode, we take a realistic but slightly cynical approach to fix and work, bringing you raw and honest conversations with disruptors, innovators, and even random working people like you and me with one goal to reshape the workplace as you know it. But sometimes we take a break from all that and talk about real life, like relationships and well-being and kids and animals. And along the way, we drop a few F-bombs too. Whether you're an HR professional trying to do the right thing, a leader looking to connect with their people, or just fascinated by workplace dynamics, this is your destination to fix work once and for all. On this episode, I'm chatting with Jason Corsello. He's the founder and general partner at Acadian Ventures. Jason is an expert in the world of SaaS technology, HR tech, and venture capital. And on today's show, we're talking not only about the future of work and work technology, but what he likes, what he finds interesting about this really crazy period of time that we're in that's all about skills-based technology and artificial intelligence. So if you're interested in the future of work and just want to hear from a really cool guy that I have known forever, well, sit back and enjoy this chat with Jason Corsello on this week's Punk Rock HR. Hey, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Lauren. Great to see you. Yeah, you too, man. You know, I was thinking, um, I cannot remember when we met. Like I don't have that memory and I can't remember what year, but for most of my professional adult life, I've known you. Isn't that weird? <laughs> well, it was, it must've been 2008, um, at some HR technology conference. I don't know. I think it's gotta it be that. I mean, my God, I mean, we're just babies, but it, um, it's been a minute since, uh, we've met. Why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do for a living? Yeah, thanks, Lori. So my name is Jason Corsello. I'm the general partner at a early stage venture capital firm called Acadian Ventures. We are super specialized. All we do is invest globally in companies that are what we consider or would have the ambition to be the next generation of work technologies. Tell me what work technology is. That's a big term that people throw around, but what does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is future work, which I can't stand the term future work. I've been trying to figure out a better term. I don't know if this is a better one, but really... Work technology is essentially any sort of technology that's touching an employee or that can impact an employee in any favorable way. I mean, it's funny this morning I was iterating on, I was kind of writing our manifesto of things that we believe now, now that we're kind of a five-year-old firm and 
here's what I came up with. I love, I love your thoughts around it. It says, you know, we are, we invest in ground banking companies that create widely profitable customers by leveraging employee skills and productivity, employee, improving society's prosperity and giving workers the career of their dreams. Work technology, as you know, for a very long time has been broken. I think we are now at the precipice of a, a next generation of companies and technologies that can just do better for workers um, because companies just don't invest. They, they don't spend the necessary time. And I think what we found is the companies that really invest in their people are the best performing, highest performing, most profitable companies. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I think there's this weird thing that happens, though, because of budget constraints that companies will invest once and then they don't really think about the money it takes to keep up the systems, to reinvest, right? To keep current. They do one big spend and then they spend nothing for like the next eight years. Well, it's, it's, I mean, for a small, small to medium sized companies, they spend on average, I think between 500 and a thousand dollars per employee per year on technology. At the enterprise level, it's, you know, closer to, you know, 2,500 to 3,000. And in some cases, these are workers that are making $200,000, $300 a year. It just seems like a huge disconnect in that how much we invest in the tools and technologies that workers use, employees use every day don't make up or, or, or aren't, aren't equal to how much we actually pay them on a daily basis to do their job. Yeah, you're right. I think so many of us uh, still operate off of Google Sheets, right, <laughs> and the old ways of doing things. But I like your definition of work tech, that it touches an employee, because that could be a financial system. That could be cybersecurity, right? It could be a whole host of things. It's not just payroll or the standard HRIS system, like the old PeopleSoft that I grew up in, right? You know, it can be a whole panoply of platforms. So I'm thinking particularly about some cool stuff that I've seen and maybe we can just talk about HR tech and work tech in general. Like, give me the nuts and bolts of it before we talk about the cool stuff. I'll try to give you the short version, which is there's a lot of innovation that's happening that has happened, will continue to happen. We're, we're facing a short-term challenge right now in that the, the markets, and it's not just in HR tech, work tech, it's also in fintech, it's in procurement and supply chain, is these markets have been overfunded. Um, in the last five years. And these companies have been overvalued. So it's created a huge, huge problem in that there's just way too many companies, startup companies uh, and technology companies that the market can support. And I'll give you some some background data to this, which is typically, you know, before 2019, in any year, VCs, VCs would invest between four and $5 billion in HR tech and work tech companies. In 2021, it spiked from kind of, you know, this norm of four to five billion to 17 billion. So basically forexed in the span of, you know, a year, year and a half. That was part in because of zero interest rate policy. It was part because of all a bunch of things that were happening in the world. But we went from kind of four to five times or four to five billion dollars to 17 billion. Now in 2022, it dropped to 10 billion. And thankfully, in the last year, it's dropped below $4 billion, 3.7 to be exact. So we're kind of back to normal. But we had this massive spike over the last three years of just lots of dollars flowing into the market to create companies. And so we have an overabundance of companies that raise too much capital at too high valuations. And now we're, we're weaning off of that. And so what that's created is just a, a mass abundance of companies. We have too many companies in the market today. I mean, do we need another employee engagement solution? Do we need another X, Y, or Z? I mean, there's 400 odd 
learning management solutions in the market today. Wait, so, wait, yeah, I, do, I do want to push back on that for a second because maybe we do need these companies because so many companies are terrible and so many of the legacy organizations are terrible, right? So, I mean, yes, it sounds, this spike sounds crazy and I'm glad the market is correcting itself, but hopefully it's not correcting itself back to the previous level of mediocrity where the tools and technologies didn't match the need for innovation, the need for speed, the need for collaboration, because we were missing that pre-COVID. Yeah, so I don't think I don't think we need more companies, but I think to your point, we need more innovation because there's too many solutions that kind of do the same thing, right? And they've all kind of you know they've all kind of followed each other as as we know in this market, right? There's a lot of follow followers out there that say, oh, we maybe we can do that better, faster, cheaper, or what have you. But I, I just think there's there definitely needs to be more innovation, and it's happening. I think you know. In any given year, last year, I think we looked at 1,200 companies, over 1,200 companies to invest in, and we made 10 investments. I think we made actually nine investments. So there's a lot of stuff that's still happening, and there's a lot of innovation that's happening. I'm super excited. I'm sure we're going to talk about AI, right? But I'm extremely excited about the AI opportunity because this is the beginning of a pretty significant super cycle of technology innovation. Yeah, I'm a little worried and we can skip ahead to AI because really what else is there to talk about these days? Right, but exactly. I, okay. Like I have I have two concerns. Number one is that we're going to AI everything just like we chatbotted everything a couple of years ago and it's all going to suck. So that's like one concern. The second concern I have is that we're going to have a machine to machine economy that a couple of humans have learned how to monetize and then we're going to have the scrappy human to human economy that sucks. So where do you want to start? <laughs> oh boy. I don't know. I'm a little scared now. I, I think it's probably maybe somewhere in between, which is, um, a, you know, everything's going to be AI. I mean, if you look at our portfolio, we have 30 companies. A little over a year ago, about 14% of them were doing something AI related. Now it's like 85% of them are doing something AI related. Should it and be some 100%? Are, is that like the standard in the future? Um, I don't know if it's ever going to be 100%, maybe. But I, I also think that a lot of it is just doing AI for AI's sake, right? Because you got ChatGPT that kind of Gen AI that's come on the market, and you can build stuff pretty quickly. Although it's probably not hugely differentiated, but you know, it at least allows us to test out the possibility of what you can and can't do, which I I love, right? We have some companies that are doing very sophisticated things around AI, and they've been doing it for three, four, or five years. So it's a big paradigm of what people are doing today around it. I do think everything is going to become AI applicable or whatever the right word is, but I also don't think that they're going to, you know, AI is going to run the world. I think it's going to make us a hell of a lot more efficient and more effective, but it's certainly not going to put us out of jobs, you know, anytime soon. Well, I mean, from your lips to God's ears, because that is the fear. I do, I do want to talk about what good AI would look like before we talk about the apocalypse, right? Because we, uh, we have now established that you believe that there's some good AI out there, right? Uh, good bones, good infrastructure, some companies using it well. Can you think of an example that you can share of a company that's really got an AI strategy that you admire or even just uh, more generally speaking, what does good AI look like? Wow. I mean, there's tools I use every, every single day that I think has good AI. Think about just Gmail, right? Gmail now helps write my emails in some cases, right? Or, uh, you know, makes, make, makes me sound smarter than I actually am. There's this new application I've been using called Perplexity that just got venture funded by um, a, 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 some other VCs out of the Valley. And it's like Google on steroids, right? It's kind of the next iteration of Google. So instead of just typing in a keyword, you're typing in full questions and it's giving you phenomenal answers. 
So those are generally stuff I'm using every single day. In the work tech world, I'll talk my own book a little bit, right? But we have companies like uh, TechWolf out of Europe, and they're basically pulling data out of lots of different systems to basically infer where the skills sit in your organization. As we all know, everyone's kind of, you know, AI is kind of like skills right now. Everyone's trying to do something in and around it, but they're not trying to basically create these whole new ontologies and new mapping of what jobs are. It, basically, they're taking all this data that's flowing through systems already and creating inference out of, of what that data means at, at pretty high accuracy. We also have another company called CopyLeaks, which is, you know, maybe not the best, best name of a company, but what they're doing, and it's super relevant, especially in the last month, is plagiarism detection. They're using AI to essentially detect plagiarism at 99.x accuracy, you know, and, and we've seen that explode in the last, just in the last what, couple of months. So I would like to talk about maybe kind of wasteful AI before, again, before we talk about the apocalypse, right? Um, I feel like there are so many organizations as I walk through these work tech and HR tech conferences that are suddenly pivoting to AI. So that's very common. I know you've seen that as well. What are your worries? What are the dangers? And also how wasteful is this on a scale of one to 10? I think it's a 10, but you tell me. I don't know. Wow. Um, such a good question. I don't have a good response to you. I mean, there's, I don't necessarily call it waste. I call it more exploration, right? There's a lot of people exploring how to leverage AI. And to tell you the truth, it's so early that I'm not sure what's wasteful and what's going to be effective. I think so. We still have to wait a couple of years to really figure that out. I think the challenge is, is what's going to be differentiated? Because very easily you can use OpenAI and ChatGPT to throw this little kind of you know conversational layer on on top of stuff. And we have a bunch of our companies that have, have done that, right? You can create a course or a curriculum using Gen AI. It's great. But you know, how how big of a competitive moat is that today? I don't know. I don't know what that answer is yet. I hope that they're gonna keep innovating and outpacing others to get to that differentiation, but it's too early to tell right now, in my opinion. That's fair. That's fair. You know, where I see the pivot happening and where I see it just being totally wasteful is trying to replace that human to human connection. Like, you know, there are so many um, performance management organizations that like companies out there right now, they're like, we're embedding AI and it pretends to add efficiencies, right? It pretends to add productivity. But what I fear is that it removes that human to human connection. So that's where I see some of the waste and some of the thoughtlessness around AI strategies. And I don't know if you ever want to brag about pivoting to AI, because I think there's a whole conversation that you have to have with like users and potential customers, right? And prospects before you even brag about your future AI strategy or am I crazy here? No, I think you're not crazy. I think this is a, like any technology shift, there's a lot of excitement in the beginning, right? And then you get a lot of early adopters that like to brag about what they're doing with their friends and their peers and others. But these are long cycles that play out, right? And I always look back at at, at the, the SaaS industry, the cloud industry, whatever we want to call it these days, right? But in 2000 was really the emergence of the quote unquote cloud. What we called it at that time is ASP, application service providers that would say, well, yeah, well, this application, we'll just host it in the, in, the, in the proverbial cloud before the cloud existed, right? And then became SaaS, software as a service. And then it became multi-tenant SaaS, which is like, oh, we just like to run this. We'll run everyone's, we'll run every company on the same instance of, of the software. But that really took 10 years from kind of 2000 to 2010 was kind of the early stages of software as a service, right? The emergence of companies like Salesforce, my former employee, Cornerstone, 
success factors, ultimately Workday, right? But that was a 10-year cycle, and it was mostly early adopters at that point. And then something meaningful happened in 2010. It was the emergence of something called SOC 2. SOC 2 was essentially the, the beginning of giving customers assurance that your data was secure, your data was private, and it was essentially a, a, some industry standards that emerged. That I, don't, I don't even remember what the acronym of SOC 2 is, but it was essentially the beginning of uh, the emergence of industry standards. And that was really, to me, the beginning of real adoption of software as a service. And what you see today is anyone that really wants to sell software into the enterprise has to be SOC 2 compliant. But, you know, here we are in 2023, and really the emergence of the industry started in, in 2000, 2001, if you will. So we call it a 20-year cycle. So what does that mean for us today in AI? We're, I don't know, four or five, maybe six years into AI. We're starting to talk about what industry standards should be. I mean, the government, the President Biden put out an executive order a few months. It's probably been about two months now. The UK very quickly kind of convened a bunch of folks together to figure out that what industry standards without mandating is regulation, but it's coming. So the question is, is like what we need and what will emerge in the next couple of years is some form of industry standards around AI and what is responsible AI and, you know, all of the things that go around, how do you audit it? And that is coming. And I frankly think that will be a good thing for the industry. And we'll spur a lot of adoption. So, you know, if anything I've learned in, in my career in enterprise software is history is a good predictor of the future. And I sense AI is going to follow a lot of the same trends of software as a service. Really fascinating. As you were talking, I was thinking a little bit about the comment you made about how the market has been overfunded, right, for work tech. And it I guess begs this question, why you? Why are you doing this work that you're doing if the market is overfunded and if there are so many companies out there that are just a copy of a copy of a copy? The simple answer is technology happens in cycles. And I think we are at the beginning of another big cycle of technology evolution and adoption. And so that's why I do this is I just, I'm when I'm a super geek and I like you know, seeing technology and new technologies that emerge. But I also think there's an opportunity where, you know, we, we've got to wean off these old, I shouldn't say old, but these companies that have been created over the last 10 plus years that just weren't built correctly. And what I mean by that is they raise a ton of capital because it was available. They got great, grossly overvalued, right? In some cases, you know, multiples of call it 100x revenue, when the best performing SaaS companies publicly traded trade at, you know, seven to 10 X. So we fundamentally built companies uh, the wrong way. And I am, you know, I'm not sure it's anyone's fault. It was just the market was what the market was. It was just overfueled. And, and so to me, I think one is you have the convergence of a massive technology cycle that's underway, the opportunity to reset in terms of how you build companies. I mean, you know, you shouldn't need when, when Cornerstone, went public in 2011. I think the company raised in total about almost $50 million. And they still had, I think, you know, a big chunk of that in the bank. So we have to build companies the right way with it, which is just more methodical, more, I don't want to say bootstrappy, but um, with not all the excesses that that we've had over the last, you know, five to 10 years. Fiscally responsible, I think would be a good start, right? More realistic on where money can go, more realistic, maybe with executive compensation and payouts and things of that nature. I like, you know, I like where you're headed with that. So you're doing this work because you ultimately think 
that you can pick some winners in the marketplace, correct? Oh, I sure hope so. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> so that's what, why we do. I mean, it, yeah. I was going to say, in venture capital, there's this, there's this thing, or there's this term, the power law, and then the power law essentially, what the belief is, is if if you have a portfolio of twenty five or thirty companies, two or three of those are essentially going to p- deliver the performance of that fund. So you have to be good at finding those next generation companies and picking picking the winners, and it's totally not easy. I mean, the one thing I've learned about this job in the last five plus years is is it's hard, you know, and there's a, frankly, there's a lot of luck involved. You know, I'm a believer of you make your own luck, but there, you know, markets change and things happen. And, you know, you got, when opportunity presents itself, you gotta, you gotta go straight after it. But um, it's uh venture capital is certainly not an, an easy business. No, I can't imagine. You know, I was just thinking when you talked about luck, I mean, there is that element of luck in making your own luck. There's also good judgment, right? There's following trends, but then there's also being open and aware to market conditions where certain people may not have had opportunities to be funded in the past, but have really brilliant and great ideas. So how do you balance all of that to make sure you're making good decisions. I know it's not just you. You've got a whole team of people you work with, but how does this process work to figure out who deserves it and who doesn't? It, oh man, it's really a, a difficult question. I think we try to figure out, there's really two things at the end of the day that I think matter. One is, is it just some exceptional entrepreneur that just thinks differently, wants to build differently, has the endurance to get smacked in the face every day and, and get back up. So to me, it's kind of the saying, bet the jockey. Yeah, this is a case where you really have to make sure the founders, the entrepreneurs are, are the one percenters, right? And, you know, we frankly don't always get it right, but that's what we try to look for is, is that entrepreneur just super special in some form or fashion. The second is, is, is it a big market, right? And maybe it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily be a, have to be a big market today, but do we envision that there could be a big market that customers will invest lots of dollars in the area because they have so much pain in it? So it really comes down to to the entrepreneur in a in a big big market. If if you get those two things right, you know, and then obviously a few other things need to go right in terms of building really really good products and technology, then you know you have the the recipe for a pretty interesting company. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I would imagine that when you get it right, it's got to feel like a million bucks, right? You work with someone, they're just, they're, they're plowing along, you feel it, you connect. Uh, what does it feel like to get it wrong? That's the hardest part about this job is you do make lots of mistakes and you should make lots of mistakes. Like for, I was just talking to one of our investors yesterday, I was text messaging with him and he kind of basically said like, if you aren't making a lot of mistakes and if you don't have companies that go to zero, then you're not putting enough risk on the table. And so to me, we're going to have losers. I think in our first fund, probably have, you know, of 27 companies, we'll probably have seven that go to zero. You know, the hope is that you've got four or five that take off and a bunch of others that maybe you get your money back on. But I guess the hard part is when you see things going wrong, you try to help, you know, you can't save it. That to me, and, and then it comes down to how much time do you really devote, especially in cases where the entrepreneur just is hard-headed or doesn't doesn't want to listen, which which I'm I'm not sure I'm necessarily fine with. But at the end of the day, like we're not running the companies, and and if we if we are super involved in running the companies and we've made a bad investment, 
it is really, really hard to watch companies fail because, you know, you always think you can help them out more better. And, and um, sometimes you just, it's the nature of, of the, the job and the, the, the industry that we're in. Well, when I think about, you know, the venture capital industry, it does seem very cutthroat to me. It does seem very data-driven, right? A lot of tough decisions, but these are still human lives. And to your point earlier, these were exceptional people in the first place who warranted a second, a third, a fourth look, right? They warranted an initial investment. And then to see something like that fail, I mean, that's got to be just incredibly heartbreaking. You're seeing people at their very best, right? And they're most optimistic. And then at they're most vulnerable at their saddest, I would imagine. So I just wonder what that's like for you as a person. It It's really, really hard. Part, part of it is I just, I always think I can help and I should be doing more. In fact, I was, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was texting with one of our founders and I was just saying, like, I feel like we should be doing more. But to your point, I, I always try, like, you know, as much as we are, not happy that we lost money on a deal. Think about the founder that, you know, just put a bunch of years and time into some effort that didn't succeed. And so I always like, my biggest thing is I always just try to be super empathetic to the person because yeah, I can be pissed at them that they didn't execute on what they said they were going to do. But the fact of the matter is like, we're, like I said, we're in a risky job. So I have a, a extreme amount of empathy for, for founders and, if I ever have a case where a founder says, man, you were just such an asshole when, or, sorry for my ears, but you're such a jerk when this thing went, went sideways, then I, I, I probably should think about doing an, another job because I, I, we had one company in the last quarter that, that, that basically went to zero. And, and I told the founder, I was like, you did nothing wrong. Like, you know, could some of the things played out differently? Maybe, but like, I, I don't blame you at all. You know, you put in the effort, you tried your best and, and, you know, the SARS didn't align. That's okay. And I want to make sure that they feel like we've supported them and that, you know, that, you know, it will also help them find something else um, after that, after that happens. Yeah. That's really well said. I mean, these are human beings after all. And again, they are exceptional people to stand up and say, yeah, I'm going to bet on me. I'm going to take a risk, right? And I'm going to bring all these other people in and to see somebody quote unquote fail. I mean, are they really failing? They're still amazing human beings, right? But I think that's just got to be such a vulnerable time. And I'm glad you express empathy and compassion and I mean, one of the things I know and love about you is that you not only love technology, but you like people. You know, like, I don't know how you do what you do and how you've done what you've done in your past. And you still love people. You believe in humanity. And I think that's one of the things I admire about you, Jason. Well, that's very thoughtful of you, Lori. I, I appreciate saying that because it's, I mean, like any business, especially in the business that we're in, right? If, if you don't like talking to people, you don't like talking to customers, you don't like for me, I spent a lot of time talking to our investors because they've entrusted me with their capital. You know, the last thing I want them to think is like, we've taken their capital, we've invested it, but they don't know what's happening. So that's a very important part of, of my job is just being extremely transparent on both sides of the table. I mean, we have two customers, right? We have our investors, we have our founders, right? And every day I debate of like, who's more important? And it probably changes on a daily basis. I mean, Founders are really ultimately what make our firm successful, but we wouldn't be able to invest in founders unless we had capital to to do our job. So it's it's a really interesting job. I mean, someone described to it earlier is, is venture capital is very much a sales job, right? Salespeople have to be somewhat personable. I say always extroverted, but 
it's a sales job, which is you have to sell people to give you their money to go invest. And you have to, have, and in a lot of cases, sell founders to take your money, which is, which just sounds funny in saying that. Right. But it is, you know, you do have to, I, I, something I teach, I try to teach my kids. I'm not sure how successful I've been at it, but one of the things I try to teach them is in life, it's, it's important to be likable. It doesn't necessarily mean be agreeable, but if you're likable, people want to work with you. People want to share with you. And it's an important quality to have. And I try to remind my kids every single day, um, maybe one day it'll resonate, but likability to me is probably like you. I mean, everyone loves you, Lori. I mean, you have a likability factor that uh, people will go out of the way to, to do stuff. And I kind of have that same belief. Yeah. Thank you very much for saying that. Uh, well, I do. I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about what's up with you and your firm, but I also want to talk about where this market is going. So let's start there and let's go and talk about your firm because I really want to know where work tech is going to head in 2024 and 2025. I mean, so what do you like? So it's a really good question. Um, I like new technology, right? So to me, uh, and probably more specifically, my partner, Thomas Otter is spending a lot of time in AI because I fundamentally believe it's a, it's going to be a hugely important shift uh, that's going to play out over the next 10 to 20 years. You know, other areas uh, in terms of just broader technology, I mean, we still haven't figured out or solved the skills problem. When LinkedIn still knows more about employees than the employers do, yeah, that's a problem. So Skills is still something that um, needs to be cracked, and I think we're making progress, but the challenge is, is there's so many different approaches that people are taking, and that's okay, but I'm not sure we've figured out what's the right approach going forward. Wait, I, I want to talk about skills for a second because you're you're right. I mean, skills is a huge opportunity in the marketplace for companies, for organizations to get it right, to figure it out, but man, just like AI, to your earlier point, we were throwing skills in front of everything. So when that starts to happen, it means nothing. Do you feel that way right now? Because when I see skills in front of something, I'm almost allergic to it at this point. Yeah. It's almost like, what was the employee engagement, employee, you know, the, every, every booth at HR Tech employee has Employee experience. Remember employee, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. That, that was the one. Yeah. So I agree. I mean, the problem is, is it's, it, there's so many diverse types of jobs out there and it's in so many types of industries and trying to figure out like, I, because I have a skill, does that mean I'm have a, I'm a master, I have some mastery skill, or does it just mean I've taken a course and I know enough to be dangerous? And I think we, that's the part we haven't necessarily solved for yet. But to me, the, 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 there's still a huge opportunity because to me, what I care about is, you know, if I'm hiring someone is, do they have the skills to do the job? And do they have the skills to learn to do the job that maybe they don't even know about in three or five years versus just someone that did it, you know, maybe got a great performance review the last two years and, but you don't know what their, so their potential is based off of the, the skills that they've been able to accumulate over the last couple or, or 10 years. And our talent pools are so finite these days. It's not like our talent pools are expanding, right? We only have the people we have, to be honest with you. Our population is not increasing the way it needs to. We're not inviting new people into our country in the way that we have in years past. And I feel like if we're stuck with the people we have and people are just moving from company to company or squatting in their jobs, skills become incredibly important to figure out who we have and who we can develop. And quite honestly, where we do need AI and technology to supplement our business and growth strategies, right? So skills, skills is where it's at. I really believe that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was going to say one other thing, which is I think it can, related to the discussion on skills. The one other area that I'm really excited about is this kind of emergence of a global workforce, which we still haven't fully tapped into yet. And, and what I mean by that is I think you can build technology anywhere in the world today. And you have skills in areas of the world that maybe you didn't necessarily think they were areas of skill. And I'll give you one example, right? We have a, a portfolio company called WorkPay that's based in Africa. And I would put those two entrepreneurs against any other entrepreneurs in our portfolio. Um, not only are, do they have you know, skills and expertise and knowledge, um, but they've got the hustle and grind. So we're, and we've made a, a number of emerging market investments. We have a company in Southeast Asia. We have a company in Latin America. And I generally believe that, you know, we, we're, I don't want to say we're getting to a level of parity, but, you know, you can find skilled workers anywhere in the world today. And I think the, I, I fast forward it, you know, in the next 10 years, I think the most successful and profitable companies are the, are the ones that are going to be leveraging the global workforce. Because you can build, you know, technology in 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 uh, Southeast Asia and Malaysia at one twenty one twentieth the cost that you can in Silicon Valley. There's a amazing cost arbitrage opportunity in in a lot of areas, and so I, I and and frankly, the the deficit in terms of the skills and knowledge and and capabilities of a person is not dramatically different in a lot of areas. So I'm hugely bullish on the global yeah. workforce itself. Well, I like that. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how the cost of living and the cost of doing business changes in the global workforce does, you know, inflation set in on some of these wages, right? In some of these different markets, do workers in Silicon Valley have an opportunity to compete because they are living in a market that demands higher wages, right? So there are a lot of, I think, social issues that play into the global workforce. So that'll be fascinating. All right, my friend. Okay. Those are three cool things we should be paying attention to. What is happening at your organization? I know you always have news. You always have stuff going on. Like what's cool? What's happening? Well, we're doing, we're continuing to do the same thing, but one of the uh, most exciting things that we uh, finished off at the end of December is we completed our second fundraise. So in venture capital, you raise captive funds. Um, You go invest those funds over a two to four year period of time. When I launched the fund in 2019, we launched, we invested our first fund. And now I'm excited to share that we're now launching or we just completed our second fund. So over the next three plus years, we'll be investing upwards of $30 million in early stage companies to, to, to solve the problems that we're talking about and find those next generation of entrepreneurs that are building the future. Oh my goodness. Now you're going to have like all, all 16 of my listeners knocking at your door, asking for money. So there you go. <laughs> Bring it. Bring it. I love uh, it. Yeah. You know, that's the best part about this job is talking to entrepreneurs. I love it. Well, I'm so excited for your future. What's going to happen down the road. I mean, it's a big responsibility, a second fund. As you talked about, you have two constituents that you have to manage, right? Your investors and also the founders. So your job with this new fund just uh, got twice as big, three times as big. It got bigger, didn't it? It got almost three times as big. Yes. Yeah. So we're still, you know, we're still small guys in the world of venture capital, but you know, we, you know, we want to be the best partner to our to our founders. I don't care, you know, if it's one dollar to invest or you know, hundreds of millions. Um, but we're I'm I'm very lucky to to be able to do this job. So um, 
thank you for for having us and um, excited to share hopefully more of, of what our companies are doing in the future. Well, listen, if people want to get to know you, get to know more about uh, your organization, where even read some cool thought leadership, where do we send them? Uh, you can send them to our website, which is AcadianVentures.com. We are increasingly active on LinkedIn. Um, so you can find us either both, you know, myself on LinkedIn, Jason Corsello, Thomas Otter, my partners on LinkedIn. We have a company page, Acadian Ventures. I'm less frequent on Twitter these days, but occasionally you may find me on Twitter at uh, Jay Corsello. Dude, you and everybody else. <laughs> I think it's an I okay know. thing. Yeah. Well, listen, my friend. Not a fun place to be these days. No, no. Well, listen, my friend, it was really good to see you. Thanks again for sharing your story, making us a little bit smarter about the work tech space. And once again, just thanks again for coming on Punk Rock HR. You're the best. Thanks, Laura. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. Show notes and more can be found on punkrockhr.com. This episode was expertly produced by Emerald City Productions, and we would all appreciate it if you left us a five-star review. So go to wherever you stream your podcasts like Apple or Spotify or iHeartRadio and leave that five-star review and your thoughts on the episodes themselves. Now, that's all for today, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We will catch you next time on Punk Rock HR.